You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want it clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax. That's right. Have it looking real spiffy. Wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush, and spot-free rinse and vacuums as well. If you're like me, you have a dog. I have a golden retriever. She sheds so much. So I need the vacuums at Tommy's Express Car Wash, and boy, do they have them. They do them right. That's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's Express Car Wash. And don't forget to download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's at Tommy's Express Car Wash. Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's going on? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson with Cool C. DeButar here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Royals play tonight and Jackson Kowar is going to be back on the bump for Kansas City. He returns to the majors after really struggling in his first time up. I don't know if there was something mental that went on. I don't know if he was tipping pitches. But this is a guy who had a sub-2 ERA, was absolutely dominant, looked like one of the best pitchers in the minor leagues when he's at AAA. He got called up to the Kansas City Royals and in three starts was kind of abhorrent in those three games. So he goes back down to the minors and maybe some of those struggles, maybe it, it leaks into you know, the mental side of things. And he struggled even in AAA, not as much as what he did in the majors. His last start, though, was really good. May have figured something out. Six innings of work, two hit ball, no runs, nine strikeouts. Now he comes back up. I'll be interested to see if he can do something similar that what we saw with Daniel Lynch. I'm really excited to see him back. Um, I always find it interesting how much kind of mental acuity plays into baseball. Right. You know, I don't think we hear a ton of stories about basketball players or football players getting the yips. I know that we had like Markel Fultz, but that might have been actually something actually physiological. But lots of baseball players seem to get into mental funks that uh, significantly impact their play in a way that maybe we either don't notice or maybe just doesn't happen as often with players of other sports. Yeah. John Lester has had the yips thrown to first and. Uh, Rick Ankeel, who was a former like high-level pitcher, ended up getting the yips as a pitcher and had to become an outfielder. He was a really good outfielder. He could make throws from the outfield, just couldn't do it on the mound for whatever reason. So it's definitely a part in baseball, and, and I don't know if that was the case with Jackson Core or not. It's just very odd when you see somebody who's dominating like he was at the minor league level and not just you know coming in from A ball or something. He was doing it at the AAA level. And to come in and, you know, it makes sense if you're first year up, you have a four or five ERA. But it was a struggle to even get out of the first or second inning in the three times that we saw Jackson Kowar. So, who knows? Uh, I'll be interested to see what happens tonight. They're facing Cleveland, which isn't the best offense. That'll be kind of a, a good easing back for Jackson Kowar. But if you're able to get something from him in this start, and I would think moving forward, I, I would imagine this isn't just a, hey, we're going to start him in and send him back down. If you're able to get something out of him, not necessarily to the level of what Daniel Lynch did, where he struggled early, went back down, came back up, 
and now has been a good pitcher since. Even if you get him to be, because what Daniel Lynch has done is is a low twos ERA over his last six starts since coming back. Even if Jackson Core is a mid fours ERA the rest of the way, just be a guy that you feel like heading into next year can be a part of next year's rotation, even if it is the four or five man in the rotation. That would be progress moving forward, and I think that's what you're looking for tonight. The other thing happening tonight in the Royals game, Adalberto Mondesi is back. He's going to be DHing. Interesting. At this point, I would just think with the organizational depth that you have at the middle infield spots, Nicky Lopez, Whit Merrifield, Bobby Witt coming up. Even saw MJ Melendez was playing third at the minor league level last night. This seems like the future to me for Mondesi. He's either going to have to DH or they're going to have to play him in the outfield. Except, you know, I think that Fangraphs seems to think that Bobby Witt isn't that great of a defender. Well, it's less about the defense with Mondesi. It's more about the can he stay healthy. And at this point, he, pro- he has proven he cannot stay healthy. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you do everything in your power to try to keep him healthier, and that would be either DHing him or playing him in an outfield spot where, you know, not probably not even center field where he'd get to use that speed, probably in a corner outfield spot. That's usually where you see some big sluggers who are maybe slower who aren't great fielders play in the outfield. That might be the solution. When is that uh, expanded roster come around? It's today. Oh, it's today. today. Yeah, then so that's part of how Jackson Core came up. That's how Adalberto Mondesi came up. I guess I thought it wasn't until like mid September. No, it starts in September. Um, it's a twenty eight man roster now, though, instead of it used to be forty. So that mm-hmm. impacts things. You know, if it's forty, we might be seeing Bobby Witt right now. We might be seeing Nick Prado right now. But you know, I, I really wish we could see what Bobby Witt can do because I think that. His numbers look really, really solid in terms of power hitting. I think his defense is a little suspect for a shortstop. But, you know, so is like Fernando Tatis, right? So, you know, maybe it's all right uh, to be a little bit more of a mediocre defender at shortstop than it used to be. Yeah, so things actually happening for the Royals, even though they're well out of the playoff picture at this point. You'll be able to hear that game tonight right here on KLWN. Andy Kotelnicki uh, had... A presser with the media today, the offensive coordinator for KU. So did Brian Borland. We'll play both those guys' audio later in the show. It seems like the quarterback position might be trending away from Miles Kendrick. Jason Bean's been a name that seemingly gets brought up a lot. Who knows? Maybe Jalen Daniels still has a chance in this thing. But talked about this yesterday in terms of the offense. Whoever is guiding the quarterback position, you don't just have to see improvement from what they bring on the field, but you have to see improvement from the positions around them. And the overall end game for this team, it just has to get a lot better. You averaged 15 points per game a season ago. I wondered, I, I kind of pondered yesterday, even if you improve because you scored 15 a game, you gave up 46 a game, even if you get a touchdown better on offense, even if you get a touchdown work or better on defense, is that even enough to move the needle here? What are we talking about? Because at that point, you're still scoring 22, giving up 39. Like, is that enough to actually make any headway in any regard? But I actually, I went back and, and I found some some positive things that would make you think, yes, that would be enough to make a headway. Now, am I saying, is that enough to make headway to be like a bowl team? No, that's not what I'm saying. But that's not the expectation here in year one under Lance Leipold. You had a short offseason. Over under win total is one and a half. 2015, KU went 0-12 under David Beatty. I believe that was David Beatty's first year. And then the next year in 2016, they made a similar jump, and they went 2-10. and 
which, again, if you go 2-10, and 10, you're hitting the over, I guess, on the over-under win total. And that 2015-16 to 16 year, you made a leap. You went from 15 points per game to 20 points per game. And you went from giving up 46 points per game to 37 points per game. So, in total, that's, what, a 14-point turnaround overall? I think that's kind of the bare minimum of what you're hoping to see from this year's team. And again, like I, it, it's kind of a free pass season for Lance Leipold, but you know, ideally you would like to see those steps made in the right direction of being a more competitive team. And for that to happen, the scores would be closer. And for that to happen, your points per game average goes up, your points allowed goes down. How feasible do you think that is? I mean, uh, I think it's super feasible. I just want to mention what you said about it being like a free pass year. I think from an organizational perspective, it might be a free pass year, but I don't know from a fan perspective it's going to be a free pass year if Leipold, like, gets zero wins. Um, I think if he can get one or two, I think people will be all right with that situation. And I think that um, a 14-point swing, whether it comes more from the offense or more from the defense, is super viable. Um, I actually don't know a lot about uh, Bean as a quarterback. Like, I don't know what he's really capable of. Uh, but I think regardless of where that 14 points comes from, I think it's definitely doable as long as Leipold, you know, is as legit as uh, some people seem to think he is. It's just so tough because, like I said, you're you're going from getting outscored by 31 points per game to what can you do this year. So some other past mentions of this, 2013 – you got outscored on average 32 to 15. So that's a 17-game differential. And if you can get to that point where you're a touchdown better on offense, touchdown better on defense, scoring 22 a game, giving up 39 per game, you might think, okay, well, that probably means you're 0-12 again. 2013, you had a negative 17-point differential per game. You still won three games that year. I think if you win three games this year, you're going to be happy about that. Dude, I don't even know how that's possible. The math does not add up on that one. Well, Think about it. I mean, if you... I don't remember the final scores in that year. That's the that's, issue, right? If you if you lose to Oklahoma 56-7, to seven, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you beat somebody, I don't by know. By like three. Whoever. Right, okay. exactly. You beat yeah. somebody by three. Then, on average, you lost one game by 49. You won the other game by three. Your average point differential is, at that point, like a minus 23. Uh-huh. So, that's how you get to that point. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how the math works out there. But 2019 as well, like you... Gave up 36 points per game. He scored 23 and a half. And that team won three games and probably should have won four or five, to be honest. They probably should have beat Coastal Carolina that year. Probably should have beat West Virginia that year. Heck, you could have even beat Texas that year. That could have been a bowl team. And still, you were outscored 36 to 23 and a half. Now, if you actually did end up on top of those, then maybe the point differential is a little bit closer. But you still would have been outscored in that situation. So maybe an average score if you can get that. Again, touchdown better on offense, touchdown better on defense. 39-22, Thirty-nine to twenty-two. Maybe you'd take that because that could be enough to win two to three games. I think you definitely take that. Uh, but the problem with point differential, you're uh, aware of the idea of like a Pythagorean win-loss yes. record in like baseball. So that just basically uh, guesses what your win-loss record should be based on run differential in baseball. Um, and the problem with that is that sometimes you have teams who significantly outperform their uh, Pythagorean win-loss. And there was some a, a San Francisco Giants team in like 19, it was either 92 or 93, that won 100 games and they had a negative run differential. I don't <laughs> know how insane. that's possible. But my point is is that, you know, this could be like a weird year if you if your point differential even 
improves, you could still win zero games with an improving point differential. Yeah. And I think that that would be something that the casual fan might raise red flags over and go, well, Leipold's, you know, a, a fraud. Like, we won zero games again. How is this possible? And maybe you would take a more advanced eye to look and say, actually, the team improved a lot and we got unlucky at bad times. That wasn't a result of coaching. Yeah, I, I guess that's... You know, I'm kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth here, but yeah, that's that's kind of the point here. It's like on one hand, you can get a lot better from where you were last year and not see the win-loss results necessarily, but also there is proof that if you get even a little bit better on this end and a little on this end, then maybe you could surprise some people. So you have both sides, but I think they're all related to the same thing in the standpoint that you know you'd be headed in the right direction. Now, as far as as what you could see from the offense. I, I don't know. Like, you go back since 2009, so 2010 on, the most points per game KU has averaged in a season is 23.8. And I don't know if that's gettable, but if you can surpass that number, I think you're going to find yourself very happy. What was season. last year's? 15. I think it's, hmm. I could see us doing 20. I could see us doing 20 this year. That that would be my guess. If you were going to, like, make me predict... I would say it's probably about 20, 20 and a half is where I would put our uh, points per game this year. I think defense is a lot harder to judge. I'm I'm a lot more cagey about uh, projecting defense with uh, players that we haven't seen a lot of before. I think that's a very difficult thing to do. Well, I'm going to ask Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star about that coming up in about 20 minutes from right now if he thinks they can get around that mark or maybe over it because if you do – Kind of changes the precipice of where you think this thing could go with that whole point differential talk. He's Cole C. Butar. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Andy Kotal, Nikki Audio, next. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star joins now on the show Jesse, I was talking about this a little yesterday and a little bit more today. KU could be a touchdown better on offense. They could be a touchdown better on defense and still have, at that point, an average score of like 39 to 22. I I don't know what the max a team has ever improved in a season from that standpoint, both offensively and defensively. Seems like most that happens on one end of the ball one year will be around seven to nine points, but... I'd imagine even if there is that big of a turnaround, what are we talking about here for Kansas and how possible do you think that is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of where the preseason optimism really hits um, reality, right? I mean, you mentioned, Derek, KU's games in the Big 12 last year were not competitive. Uh, all but one were not competitive. You know, they played Texas Tech close very in the very end of the season. But the rest of those, I think all of them, I, I looked it up, I think all of them, other than that game where 20 points or more uh, were the deficits in those games. And so, you know, I talk a lot about, hey, you got to crawl before you walk. you got to walk before you run. Um, That's sort of where Kansas football is at right now. I mean, they're coming from a place where, you know, it's been bad over the past decade or so, but um, last year's results almost rival any of those years just because of the lopsided score nature and obviously getting zero victories uh, when the season was said and done. So you're right. I mean, there are improvements that need to take place. I think probably the hope for Kansas is even if those numbers remain ugly, and they could remain ugly based off of playing a Big 12 schedule and 
you know, having to have a new staff take over after spring ball, all those sorts of things. But, you know, maybe you play well and are more competitive. Maybe you play well and, and rise up and get four or five turnovers in a game and you upset a Big 12 team. You know, those, those are the kind of hopes and that maybe later in the season when you're starting to figure out the schemes and learn what the coaches are wanting you to do, that those games get closer and closer and closer and tighter. And, and obviously you know, things look a little bit different than when they first started out. So that's probably the big picture goals. Um, the numbers can be pretty ugly if you look at them. And as you said, there's probably a ways to go for KU to get to like right behind the ninth place team in the Big 12 compared to where they are right now, which is kind of a gulf between them and the ninth place team in the Big 12. And, you know, you have to grow some way. You have to try to get better in, in some small increments every single day. And if Kansas can do that, if they can kind of um, bridge that gap a little bit by the end of the season, then they'll be in better shape for 2022 and beyond. And potentially that'll be good enough to kind of declare this season a victory. Yeah. And I mean, I'll say this, like looking back at, you have your 2019 season where you were outscored per game by 13 a game, or you go back to 2013 when you won three games and you were outscored by 17 a game. Um, you have 2016 when you were outscored when you had a similar improvement offense to defense after a winless year and won two games that year being outscored by around 17 or so points per game. So I, I, I guess if you can improve by that much, then it's on the table for you to win two or three games. Now, it's all based on expectations there, but which do you think is more likely, the offense improving by enough or the defense improving by enough? Well, and this is a cop-out answer for you, Derek, but um, are, are we just talking strict points per game? Are we talking yards per, per um, play? Um, because I think... I think they're going to slow things down. Um, I think they're going to try to, to really value possessions, limit possessions, and, you know, do a little bit of what K-State has done recently in, in years where, you know, K-State never marched out there with the best talent when they were going up against Texas or Oklahoma. But you know what? If, if you run a scheme and you do it really well and you value possession, you don't turn it over, and you have other teams make mistakes against you, and you keep it down into a 9 or a 10 possession game instead of a 16 or 17 possession game, what do you know? You look up in the fourth quarter and you're leading 21-17 or, you know, you're down 14-10, to but you're in the game or, hey, it's 31-17 to instead of 49-14, to that sort of thing. So um, I guess it could just depend on the numbers you're looking at um, with that. Listen, you know, there's going to be something for KU's defense and the Big 12 still has some really good offenses and KU's taking on some some really good offenses uh, will, will be throughout the course of the season. So that's going to be a struggle. Um, the offense, you know, we, we've talked about so much of the offense. Um, I would probably say at this point, you'd probably say the offensive line is one of the strengths of the team. And you're saying that after last year when KU gave up 5.2 sacks per game, which is the highest number that I can find in Division One history. So <laughs> to say the offensive line is a strength after having that last season, you know, probably doesn't say that, um, maybe the expectations should be too great on the offense either. But like you said, together, can they come together? And can you do the things that actually result in winning football? One thing I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, you mentioned the slowing things down. And if you look back, I, I think the last time you could probably say KU did that was probably under Charlie Weiss uh, more so. And what's interesting is they only scored 15 points per game in 2013. In 2014, they only scored 18 points per game. But because they slowed it down, they only gave up 32 and 33 points per game. And I say only, those were actually ranked second and third since 2010 for least amount of points that KU has given up in a season. And again, to your point, it's probably not because those were the best defenses KU had, but it's probably because of the tempo thing. And those teams were able to win three games. 
So I, I guess when we look at where they're jumping off from last year into this next year, one question I do have is to get to that point where, because again, I think three wins would be a resounding success for this season in, in year one under Lance Leipold. Should we be viewing it as you have to improve from where you were last year, or do we not get to view last year as much because it was such a weird year with COVID and every team you played was either a league opponent or Coastal Carolina, who was a top 20 team, as opposed to get to playing maybe a couple other games that are going to help out those numbers at the end of the day? Can we look at it that way, that you have to jump off from where you were last year, or is that an unfair jumping point? No, I mean, you make a good point there that um, KU didn't get a cupcake somewhere in that schedule or two cupcakes, as it, you know, de- depending on the year, sometimes that happens too. But um, it, this is just a tough year. And, and I've said this repeatedly just the situation, Lance Leipold and the staff aren't going to make excuses. I mean, that's not what they got brought here to do. And they're the guys that are going to look at what they have and try to make the best out of what they do have. But the reality situation is, you know, I've made this comparison before, but it's it's sort of like, you know, if, if you and your buddies are in a class together and your buddies get told that the final's in two weeks and you get a call at 6 a.m. that the final is today at noon, um, you all can go take the test and you all can be similar when it comes to student-wise. You all could have, you know, been good students and had tutors and had access to the playbook and you all could be fine at what you do. One of you's going to get an A and one of you's going to get an F. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So um, to judge this year's team based off results is a little bit tricky because, it doesn't necessarily mean that Lance Leipold's a horrible coach or that his coaches can't coach. It means that uh, they got the call at 6 a.m. that the test was at noon, and everybody else in the class had two weeks to prepare, and, and that's just sort of the reality of the situation. And, I uh, listen, I don't want to make excuses for this coaching staff. I, I definitely think, look, next year, they're going to be bumping up against 85 scholarships and have a very veteran team. The year after that, same thing, only they're going to have a ton of seniors and guys that they've had in the program a couple years, plus will be their third year to implement things. Um, it, by year three, I don't think a bowl eligibility type of, of expectation is unreasonable. So I'm not saying that you keep expectations off of this coaching staff or that, hey, that they get five free years to do whatever they want and you can't judge them based off of that. I, I really don't see it in that view at all. But I do see it this year as like, wow, they took over something that is really, really difficult. And it's going to be tough to gauge them against the other people out there who, who got two weeks to prepare for the test. Uh, you know, but when they didn't have that same sort of opportunity. So it'll be tough to know, but uh, like I said, maybe later in the season when everything's in place, when players are more comfortable, when coaches kind of know their piece a little bit better, maybe you'll start seeing some of those signs. And the other thing I would say is um, kind of going back to the old Al Davis, just win, baby. I mean, if they could just win this first game, that would be of immense importance just to kind of get this thing going on the right start and get players to buy in to what these coaches are preaching. How much would it change? Let's say if, because I know you did your – bold predictions for the season and you predicted the score of every game and I won't spoil what's in there because you should go read it Kansas City Kansas City.com and then Kansas City Star um, but you had to be in a pretty close game with South Dakota so what would it change anything of the way you view this team and the possible outlook if instead of it being a close game if KU went out there and, and say one like 45 to 7 uh, I mean that would be good obviously I like that would go a long way, and it would go a long way toward buy-in, and potentially a little bit more. I mean, I think the big wild card here, to me, right, is South Dakota. Um, as horrible as KU has been against some SDS opponents, I mean, I just you know, I can list them off. You know, Turner Gill's debut against North Dakota State, he lost uh, six to three. David Bay's debut against South Dakota State, he lost. 
the team that KU had, and I think it was 2018 when they won three mm-hmm. games, which ties the highest they've had in the last 11 seasons, they lost the opener to Nickel State. So um, a lot of FCS losses, as, as horrible as those have been and as competitive those games have been before, you know, you also remember the Rhode Island game where KU literally brought in the worst FCS team I've ever seen <laughs> to Memorial Stadium, and they whooped up on him. You know what I mean? So um, a lot of this does come down to South Dakota, and you sort of get varying views. You hear that they're an experienced team. They obviously went 1-3 and three in the spring. Uh, they beat a top-10 opponent then as well, but you also hear that, um, you know, the quarterback isn't great and that this is not a team that's receiving votes in the FCS top 25 poll either. So um, I, I guess South Dakota's an unknown like Kansas is, but, you know, at some point, appearances are appearances, and you are what the score says you are. And I can talk all I want about nuance and, hey, you shouldn't judge the coaches based off this or the players based off that. We all know the reality. Everybody can look at the ticker on Saturday and see whether Kansas beats South Dakota and how convincingly they did. And if Kansas is able to pull off one of those victories that shows up on the bottom line when everybody else is playing that says 42-7 to or something like that, and yeah, that'll be a great start for Lance Leipold there, and that'll go a long way not only for the program, but for those who are trying to follow the program, maybe decide whether they should jump back on board or not. Talking with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star here. So this is the last time we'll talk to you before the first game of the season. I've got some over-unders for you. Are you game for this? Let's do it. All right, one and a half starting quarterbacks. Starting, not that plays this year, but starts. Oh, that's a good one. I, I, I put in my bold predictions. They'd only have one, so I guess I'll continue to stick with my bold prediction and, and say the under on that. I think that's probably not the Vegas play, but uh, the bold prediction was Jason Bean, and uh, we'll see if it plays out. Well, you're, get, you're getting plus odds if you go the under on that one, so that's the good news uh, on that. Yeah, and I need a little bit of juice on that, yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, KU finishes better or worse than ninth in the Big 12 in rushing offense. Uh, I guess you can take that however you want in terms of you know yards per run or yards per I was game. Say, or yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Uh, they're going to run a lot, but they're going to have fewer possessions. Uh, not they'll, they'll finish about ninth. So uh, I guess that would be the over ninth place. So yeah. eighth or better. Yep. Okay. Uh, over under one and a half games where KU holds an opponent under thirty points. Uh, I'd have to go back to my predictions to see if that happened. Uh, I'm not sure. I'll t- I, I think off the top of my head, I can tell you your answer would, I believe, be under. Okay, so I'll, I'll continue under. Uh, I know I predicted that uh, for the second straight year they'd allow the most points in FBS. That's not something anybody wants. But like I said, this is tough circumstances for Brian Bourne on the defense, and they lost a lot of players to the transfer portal right after the season, some of their best players. So it's a tough scenario. So I'm, I guess I'll say uh, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and again, you could be like uh, basically, I don't know, like five, six points even better than you were last year and still have mm-hmm. one of the worst defenses by points allowed per game. Okay, the high mark for KU since 2009, so 2010 and on, for points per game in a season is 23.8. Over under for that? Yeah, definitely under. Um, <laughs> but again, to, to me, that's more tempo. Uh, they're not going to rush things. I mean, 23.8 is when KU was running hurry up and trying to get up and move things, and, and they are not going to try to do that this year. What do you think would be the proper number on that one? 19 and a half? Like make it around 20? Yeah. Is I mean, still too much? If, if, yeah, if you don't, if, if don't want to be happy while you're killing time you could go back on cfbstats.com and go year by year because i remember citing that number over and over and not believing that how kansas how low kansas number was in the era of the big 12 spread offenses so yeah probably somewhere around 17 or 18 and that sounds really low but like i said with your possessions and kind of where ku is coming from a baseline 
yeah, somewhere in the 18, 19 range, somewhere in there is, is probably where you put it. All right, final one, the big one, over under one and a half wins. Now, I know in your prediction where you would go with this, but that's based on you having to pick each game. So, does it change when you're doing an over-under and just saying, hey, maybe if they have only a 10% chance at winning this, this, and this game, I'll add it up and, and maybe I'll take the over there. Or does it stay at the under? That's a good, that's a very good point, Derek. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I like to bring that up with people that, uh, yeah, that the overall thing, you can have a 10% chance to win, 20% chance to win. You add all those up, you're going to win one of them, but potentially uh, <laughs> not that. I, I do want to ask you before I answer this question, do you have a rooting interest in my answer to this? Um, I mean, it's not going to affect um, anything because something's already been a, printed. You but wallet. You don't have a wallet interest in this one is what I'm asking you. Um, I do, but okay. it's already been printed. Does that make oh, okay. So anything that you say, while it might offend me and hurt my wallet and hurt my feelings, it, uh, it won't be able to send me back in time to change anything. <laughs> I'll stick with my prediction to say the ender. I've got them at one and eleven, but your point stands well. And I will say, if you want some optimism about yours, that uh, both PFS and SP Plus, two of the you know systems out there that do the projections, they have Kansas pretty easily over that one and a half number. So, if you are looking for statistical reasons to like uh, whatever is sitting in your wallet right now, and whatever we're not going to discuss, then uh, there are at least statistical reasons out there for you to, to like that number. He's Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, joins us on Wednesdays here on Rock Truck Sports Talk. Jesse, thank you so much, as always, for your time, and talk to you next week, and we'll see. Uh, I mean, if they lose to South Dakota, I mean, that over-under, it's pretty much crushed right there. Yep, we'll see, but uh, I'm not predicting that one, and like I said, it'll be a big game for the program just because a win would be so much. All right, that's Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, joins us on Wednesdays here on Rock Truck Sports Talk. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. One hour down, two to go. All right, I know I said Joshua Briscoe was going to join us next. Still not ready. He's working on the uh, Tyron Matthew stuff with him hitting the COVID list, and today already was kind of a crazy day with the Chiefs with waiver wire um, after all the camp cuts were made, getting down all the rosters to 53 and so forth for the Chiefs. This is Rock Jock Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson with Colcita Butar. I believe Joshua will join us in about 15 minutes from right now. Uh, we are going to do our cornerback preview Coming up in about 15 minutes, so I guess we'll go ahead and do that right now. When you look at the KU football depth chart that they listed online, it is a lot of youth in the cornerback position. Overall in the secondary, a lot of youth just in general, but the two starting safeties are upperclassmen with Kenny Logan, a junior, and Ricky Thomas, a super senior, but even the backup safeties are freshmen. We'll get to the, the safeties tomorrow. As far as who's listed on the initial KU football depth chart at the corner position, Deuce Mayberry who is a sophomore. He's backed up by Jacoby Bryant, who is just a freshman, and Bryant's somebody who really, really talented as a backup. Jeremy Webb is an upperclassman. He's a super senior, the transfer, who came in from Missouri State, but he's listed as the backup to Romello Dotson, who is a redshirt freshman. So a lot of youth in the secondary probably concerns you a little bit when you're in a conference like the Big 12. But if you're in... A situation like Kansas, are you just better off, you know, playing inexperienced? Like, if you deem to say, hey, this guy maybe is just as good or slightly below the guy who is older, but he's younger and we're building something for the future, are you almost just better off playing the young guy in that situation? 100%. I just don't think it's worth it to, you know, 
we're not in a position to, you know, contend is not really the word that you would want to use, but we're not in a position to contend. Uh, so using a senior or a junior instead of a freshman who has a lot more room to improve if he can get field time is is silly to me, right? Uh, if we're going to try to set up something for 2023, 2024, uh, then getting pe- uh, kids reps is way more important than trying to maybe, I don't know, what... what eke out one extra win this year if we if you played all your older guys and I don't even think that's like a guarantee no no and I don't think this is a situation where it's like oh clearly the upperclassman guy is better but you're just playing the young guy just to get experience I think it's more of like when you think of college sports in general it's like oh you worked your way up eventually when you were an upperclassman you earned the starting job and a lot of times I'm sure if all things are even if it's like you guys are both as good as each other, I don't know who to pick. You're just going to say, oh, we'll just take the older guy because he's he's earned his dues, he's more experienced, he's paid his way. Maybe that tie doesn't go that way anymore. But I, I don't know. Maybe they just are the most talented guys. It's certainly a position group that, while inexperienced, sounds like it is one of the more talented position groups for KU. Um, as far as what you got from some of those guys a season ago, obviously Jacoby Bryant being a freshman, he uh, wasn't on the team. Um, Deuce Mayberry, I don't believe, logged any snaps last season. Romello Dotson gave you very small amount of plays. He played 44 snaps a season ago. Ended up with a 62.5 overall grade, which is pretty solid for a true freshman. Overall, you'll take that if your KU wasn't the best tackler, but was pretty okay in coverage. Again, over a 60 grade with that 60 grade being about average or so um, in the college game. And then you have Jeremy Webb, who I don't have his grade being at Missouri Southern but uh, or Missouri State, um, but a guy that you expect to come in and, and provide some versatility for you there at 6'4", 205 pounds. Gives you a little bit different of a look at the corner position specifically. Here is Brian Borland, the defensive coordinator for KU, talking about Jeremy Webb and what he could bring to the table. I saw him when he showed up, you know, just a few days ago, so... Um, but yeah, he's tall, he's long. I think there's there's huge advantage to that. He's quiet. He goes about his business. He don't he don't talk about it. He 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 is about it. You know, in terms of what he does and how he how he does it. And I mean, again, um, I think there's there's great asset to having some length out at those positions where you can use your size and length to get your hands on guys and be disruptive. And um, we're we're counting on him, but we got to count on all those guys out there. You know, uh, the fact that he's a grad transfer that's that's been in a been in some Division One played Division One football before. I think is extremely helpful because we're you know, obviously we're young at that position. Otherwise, we're, we're basically we're pretty young in the secondary. So uh, I think that part will certainly help. Uh, but also the way that he's going about it is uh, is the right way and it'll benefit us. Maybe that's the biggest role of them all. Just the leadership perspective that he's going to provide there. And the guy he's listed behind on that depth chart mentioned Romello Dotson. Got a chance to talk to Romello Dotson. KU Football Media Days about a week ago. As a corner, what do you think so far is going to be the strength of your guys' unit together? Our range, like we're all we're all tall corners and we're all like long. As far as guys who have maybe stood out so far, is there anybody that comes to mind? Like as a corner? Yeah. Uh, all of us are doing a pretty good job. All of us have been making big plays against the offense, so it should be a good year this year. What about the receivers that you guys are having to go up against? Is there anybody that's kind of the toughest to guard? Uh, all of them have given me a challenge. 
maybe they gave all of us a challenge. Like some days they'll win, some days we'll win. Is that a lot of competition in that room between the two of you guys? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of competition in the corners room. Everybody should be good this year. What's the best thing about being coached by Coach Jackson? That he's going to push you to be the best. He's, he's going to demand the best out of you. Ever. Does he ever joke around with you guys, or is he pretty serious? Yeah, he, he joke around from time to time, but when, when we get in the white lines, it's, 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 it's game on. All right, who is the fastest corner? <laughs> I say me, but me and Deuce had this argument, like, almost <laughs> every day, but I say me. Who's the strongest corner? I'll say me too. But it's always me and Deuce who's arguing about all it is that you're asking. Who would you say plays the best music on the team? On the team? Mm -hmm. uh, Kenny Logan. Okay. Is there any good singers on the team? <laughs> uh, singers? Uh, I don't know about singing. I, I haven't heard anybody sing. Uh, do you have any favorite hobbies outside of football? Uh, I like playing video games, and I like um, I like learning about cars. What's uh, what's dream car for you, and what's your favorite video game? Uh, my favorite video game is Matt, and my dream car is a Ferrari 448. Do you think you could beat anybody on the team in Madden? I can beat everybody on the team in Madden. Love it. Thanks, man. That was a common theme with some of these players, talking trash on the others in Madden, although... There were some cheating allegations from Jalen Daniels, if you remember that conversation, about what makes Romello Dotson so good. How, how's the car choice? The car choice is awesome. Yeah? That's a, that's a, that's you a dope car. You seem to know car. what that was. That's a dope car. Um, What is this Madden cheating allegation? I need to know. I don't know, like, how, how I don't know. Is he, like, looking at the other person's plays? Is he looking at the other guy's controller to see what play he picked? Maybe. That that's possible. I don't know. Jalen Daniels didn't go... I'll, Next time I get a chance to talk to him, I'm going to feel so bad if I, like, interrupt somebody's good question and ask how Romello Dotson cheats and You got to – this is journalism, yeah. Derek. No, that you got to like, confront yeah. him. I just – that's just what Jalen Daniels said, you know? I, you know, take it, take it as this you want. This is a scandal of There's massive proportions. Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> Romello Dotson, though, really talented player. And you got to have that cockiness if you're a good corner. Right? 100%. Um, and – Here's the thing for KU. If you look at yards allowed per game last year, they were fourth in the Big 12. You'd say, oh, good. You look at completion percentage against. They were middle of the pack, fifth in the Big 12. Again, good. But when you get down by a lot early in games, the other team's not passing the ball as much. And you look at yards per attempt, they were last in the Big 12 at 7.8. So it's got to get better. And I don't know how much you're expecting it to when you have an inexperienced unit. But I think there's probably some good talent there that makes you think that this DB unit overall could be pretty solid for KU. But you do have questions at that corner position with some youngsters who I think will end up having good careers at KU. You just question, are you going to be ready right away here in year one? This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Joshua Briscoe going to join us next. Talk Chiefs. I promise. This is RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I promised you Joshua Briscoe. We got him on now. Tyron Matthew had to go on the COVID list, and that, you know, obviously throws a wrench in things a little bit. Joshua Briscoe now joins us here almost entirely sports on 810. Arrowhead Report on SI Now. Time's ours on The Athletic. So I guess we'll just start right there with Tyron Matthew. What does this mean, him going on the COVID list? 
Does it mean he's in jeopardy of missing that first game? Is there any way of knowing? Yeah, so first of all, appreciate you for being flexible with how this day has gone. It's been a busy couple of days with the cut downs and everything about this. Uh, yeah, so Sam McDowell, the Kansas City Star, tweeted a few minutes ago that Matthew has been fully vaccinated. Um, signs pointed to that. And so there's a very, 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 very practical application from that, which is that fully vaccinated players who, who, te- who are asymptomatic, if they have two negative tests 24 hours apart, they can return to team facilities. If you're not vaccinated and you test positive you have a 10-day isolation period well right now we're 11 days away from the chiefs first regular season game so the the simple fact that tyron matthew is vaccinated against covid uh is is a a very good sign that he will be available in week one i cannot say for sure i don't know if he is symptomatic i there's a lot we still don't know but i i would have probably said there was like a five or ten percent chance that he would have played if he was not vaccinated uh, now that we know that he is, it seems like maybe you could shoot somewhere in that, I don't know, 70 to 80 percent range, really hinging on if he's symptomatic or not. We're talking with Josh Briscoe here. OK, that's that's good to know with all that information. So I guess it's kind of wait and see from there. Um, as far yeah. as what else made these past couple of days very busy, the Chiefs cutting down the roster along with other NFL teams down to 53 players. What cut or cuts surprised you the most? I mean, Cornell Powell is a disappointing one because it's the first time Brett Beach has had to cut a draft pick or has, you know, chosen, I guess, to cut a draft pick that he made that same year before getting to their initial 53-man roster. Um, that blow is softened by the fact that, you know, Doris Fountain ends up having a great camp in preseason. He can kind of, you know, take that job in a way that you don't just have to automatically award it to your draft pick. I, I think in some ways that's a good thing, but it's softened a lot more by the fact that Powell is on the practice squad now, so he can continue to develop in Kansas City. Hopefully no one else snipes him off the practice squad or whatever. Uh, so that that is, is encouraging. And other than that, I mean, I was surprised to see them carry six linebackers. Uh, I think that is maybe a bit of a warning on, on the severity of Willie Gay Jr.'s toe injury. I, I don't know that he's going to end up on the, the IR, which would knock him out for three weeks, or maybe he isn't available week one and they, you know, he'd just be one of the inactives in that first week. Hard to say for sure there. Um, but six linebackers was surprising with Willie Gay Jr. being the obvious implication after the, the toe injury he suffered in the third preseason game. Uh, excited for Fountain, excited about Jody Fortson. Uh, and, and a little bit bummed about Cornell Powell. But also, I mean, all of those moves, we're talking about the last four or five moves, and I was a little surprised about Chris Lammons over Bo PTs. Uh, Tim Moore didn't make the roster. But we are talking about, you know, guys 48, 49, 50, and, and a lot of those guys end up being special teamers or, or inactive on game days or, or depth pieces that they can adjust later. So I, I do think, I mean, we've gotten plenty of great, of great content around that for the last couple of weeks. And, and rightfully so we should take it where we can get it. But ultimately, you know, I, I don't think any of those guys are going to determine if the chiefs are back in the Super Bowl or not, but it is, it is kind of fun. And I do think Powell went from being the disappointment uh, of those cuts to being still um, back on the practice squad, providing a little glimmer of hope there for his future. Okay. So of the guys who maybe did make the cut, who do you think would be a guy that could have an impact on the field as, as far as, you know, not necessarily as a starter, but mm-hmm. along with the starters if they're in certain formations? 
Uh, I mean, I I do like Jody Fortson. I, I think he also, you know, might not be active week one. It depends on his, his special team standing. Uh, I do think that Reese Fountain has a chance because they're going to, I, I think, have a bit of a receiver-by-committee approach for everybody who's not uh, Tyreek Hill and, and maybe to some extent even McCole Hardman. I, I don't know. Um, but fluctuating among those guys will be something to keep an eye on. The pass rushers will also, will also be interesting uh, because they didn't keep Tim Ward, so they, they feel pretty good about Alex Okafor, about Josh Kando. Uh, I, I was not incredibly certain that he would end up having a large role over the course of, of this year as a rookie, but I, I think they must be expecting a little bit more from him there, which I think is perfectly fine. Uh, and I really, I think the, the pass catchers and the pass rushers are, are probably the, the names to keep an eye on. You look at the cornerback group, which is relatively deep, but also relatively unproven. I think it's a super interesting unit. I don't know that Chris Lammons is going to get any defensive playing time. Um, if Matthew misses the uh, the start of the season, it makes Devin Key and Zane Anderson, who both ended up on the practice squad today, it makes their spots a little bit more interesting uh, to see maybe they are a game day call up if Matthew can't go week one. But again, you know, you, you talk about we can talk about Dorian O'Daniel until we're blue in the face, and, and if he has an impact this season, he, he and he will, it'll be on special teams, and we're talking about a handful of plays a game and. Um, ultimately, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of interesting to see how much that needle really does move. After watching the full slate of preseason, and, and now we have no more preseason tape or games to watch before the start of the regular season, what is your excitement level at this point for the offensive line? I'm excited. I think I'm probably, at this point, I might actually be most excited about Creed Humphrey. I had a chance to talk to uh, my friend Seth Kaiser, who had, uh, charted, Creed's first two preseason game snaps and found zero total losses among all of the snaps he graded of Creed Humphrey. He hasn't done game three yet, but I imagine it's going to look very similar. And so I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see them all as a unit. I do think, you know, we'll see a rookie moment from Trey Smith or, or Lucas Niang. We'll, we'll see uh, Orlando Brown Jr. look a little bit out of place in a system that has not been what he's been used to in his NFL career so far. But ultimately, I mean, Joe Tooney is a robot. I'm, I'm not concerned about Tooney. I'm not concerned about Creed on, like, any level at this point. And, and so I, I think that the one thing I would caution is that if in week one they don't perfectly stonewall Miles Garrett and Jadavian Clowney, if, if it takes, you know, four to eight games before you say, like, oh, yeah, it seems like they hit their stride, don't be surprised by that and don't freak out if we get to that point. Because I do think that – I mean, I'm excited about it now, but by the time we're talking again in December – it could be Patrick Mahomes piloting the Death Star. <laughs> I I wonder too with like Orlando Brown. I think it's funny that you have all this question about you know him switching over from right tackle to left tackle and being in an offense with the Ravens where it was run first. But all you have to do is go back to college, and he was at Oklahoma. So like, how different mm -hmm. is it? You know. Yeah, and the, the biggest thing is mostly the vertical pass set. So you know, think about. Whenever you are, when the snap happens, if you envision Eric Fisher in your head, you, you probably envision him taking those first slide steps straight backwards. It's, it was very, this is true for Mitch Schwartz also. It was smooth and it was vertical, you know, perpendicular to the line of scrimmage to, for the most part, you know, a little bit of wiggle. But um, you, you're moving backwards in a way that's kind of running pass rushers behind the quarterback most of the time. And then you're winning with your foot speed and your hand placement and everything like that. And Orlando Brown typically plays to contact first, you know, his, his hands go to the lineman 
across from him, and he, he engages that contact, and then he wins it with strength. And so it's been something we've talked a lot about over the course of this offseason. I think both sides are going to meet in the middle a little bit, and I, I think it'll work out just fine. I, this is not me being a, a party pooper by any means. I think that we, we've seen and will continue to see Mahomes and Andy Reid and Andy Heck, the offensive line coach, all work with Orlando Brown to try to play to his strengths. And Orlando Brown is going to have to play to the Chiefs' scheme a little bit more. And again, with that group and the coaching staff and, and Mahomes and all working with Orlando Brown, who's really smart and really good at what he does, I, I do think they're going to end up being able to make that, um, that, that to make that meeting in the middle sort of compromise stylistically in a way that'll work out just fine. It just might not be absolutely pristine, and it certainly won't look exactly like how Chiefs fans watched Eric Fisher. Uh, from that position, because they just play the position different ways or different body types, and I think they will both, at Fisher, you know, in the past, and Brown in the future, both hold that spot very, very well. I don't know, Josh, if you say you're not the party pooper, if you have to make that statement, maybe you should evaluate. Maybe I am. If you're, yeah, maybe. Maybe yeah, on Orlando Brown fair. here. Um, how do you? No, think? I, I do. I, I'm optimistic, I, I, and I think it's going to work. I just, I just don't want people to get out ahead of their skis, and all of a sudden in week one, you know, Miles Garrett beats him. God forbid a left tackle loses to Miles Garrett, and then they got to deal with all of Twitter. You know, <laughs> right? No, very fair. We're talking with Josh Briscoe here on RCST. So, how do you think they match up? Not just the offensive line, defensive line, but the Chiefs as a whole uh, against the Cleveland Browns. I mean, I, I here, here's where I'm going to sound like a party pooper again. Why am I being, <laughs> why am I negative today? I'm just tired. I'm sorry. Um, I, so. I think the biggest test is going to be Orlando Brown, or Orlando Brown Jr., uh, Odell Beckham Jr., the other OBJ, as I call him. Mm. Um, <laughs> you, you have OBJ and Jarvis Landry trying to figure out where exactly they're going to end up attacking this chief secondary. I think that's going to be super interesting because, you know, the, the secondary looks pretty good throughout the course of the preseason, but they've never had to play four quarters against elite pass catchers and a really good quarterback. You know, I, we, can, we can pick nits on if Baker Mayfield is, is 5, 8, or 12 in the NFL, whatever, but he's excellent you know, in, in the grand scheme of quarterback playing, and he's got real weapons there. So can the secondary that's been a little bit cobbled together, you, you give me Legereus Sneed up against Jarvis Landry, I feel pretty good about that. But, you know, we're going to see, can Mike Hughes hold up against, uh, or uh, again, I almost said it again, against Odell Beckham Jr.? One-on-one, or as he would have with the Vikings, I think the answer is probably no. The interesting thing is that Spags' defensive team has been so good at trying to protect his corners in a way that brings out the best of them in terms of forcing boundary throws and giving them plenty of help on the inside where the safeties like Matthew or Thornhill or, or Dan Sorensen can give those cornerbacks a lot of assistance in terms of, you know, not having to, to make them worry about covering quite so much ground on their own. So I, I am intrigued to see that matchup because I think it's going to be a really good first litmus test, uh, litmus test against the, uh, the pass catchers there. I do think O-line versus D-line is going to be super interesting, but we've, you know, largely covered that already. All right, let's get on to our final segment before we let you go. It's good idea, bad idea, and this is a chance for you to be an opposite of a party pooper. You could just say good idea on all these. Okay, first up, buying plane tickets to Canton, Ohio in 2040 for Jordy Fortson's Hall of Fame ceremony. Um, Jody Fortson, man. 
a bad idea just because I think that you're only giving him 19 years of an NFL career. And I think he could probably do it for a solid 25. Uh, so I, w- I would say, you know, tickets whenever are a good idea. Okay. Uh, signing Everson Griffin after I don't believe anybody plucked him off waivers yet. I, I, think, I think he ended up back with the Vikings. I think that ended up mm. being one of those cycles of veteran, doesn't have to go through waivers. The team can put somebody on IR and bring them back. I believe that happened like, 10 minutes ago or something. Um, and I, I wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have stressed that either way. I, I think, I think Alex Okafor is kind of their bet in terms of a defensive uh, end of veteran. So I, it, it would have been, an, it would have been fine with me, but it, you know, I can say now he's gone. Terrible idea. <laughs> All right. How about a guy who I believe is still out there this time, Larry Fitzgerald, bringing him out of retirement. I, I assume he's retired. Yeah. I don't even know. Yeah, he's just sort of. He, he said on the radio somewhere a couple weeks ago that he just didn't, like didn't have the the burn or whatever. But if partway through the season, maybe things haven't shook out quite right, he has a, a little interest again and might want to win a Super Bowl. I think it would be a good idea, or at least an intriguing one, if he comes in and, and you know he's not he doesn't have the athleticism to beat out Byron Pringle or Demarcus Robinson or whatever, or you know maybe Darius Fountain. Um, then, then so be it. Then you brought him in and, and gave it a shot or whatever. But I, I would be down, but I'm also kind of a sucker for – if you would have said, like, Terrell Owens, who I think that he wanted to come <laughs> back again, I would have been tempted by it because I'm a sucker for the guys that I, you know, I could play as in, in Madden 08 or whatever. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how far that list is. Like, we talking Chad Johnson, Randy Moss. Like, yeah. how far down Randy do we have Moss to go before you say no? Absolutely. Um, it, someone with a walker I would probably pass. But that's about it. <laughs> Um, how about this one? Good idea or bad idea? Hanging on every good game by a receiver, not named Tyreek Hill, to say they're the new number two receiver. Bad idea. <laughs> I, I really do think that's probably going to be a little bit more of a committee thing. McCall Hardman's going to have big games where he has a play that he is able to just absolutely murder a defense, just something that they were not prepared for. And then the next week, he's probably going to have, you know, one catch for 14 yards and, like, a handoff that goes for eight. And that's okay, because as long as also Byron Pringle can do that every once in a while or, or Robinson or Fountain or, or whoever can do it every, every so often. Um, I, I, I think it's a bad idea to live and die on the number two receiver hill. Last one I got for you. Utilizing nine offensive players to block for Patrick Mahomes every play, and you just have <laughs> one of Hill and Hardman, you know, they can – exchange off because they're going to get tired just from running in circles trying to get open but eventually they might get open you got nine blockers good idea or bad idea you know it's probably a bad idea but if i got to see it <laughs> one time i'd be okay with it because if they drop let's say that you know how, how many people are how many people are rushing the quarterback and how many are in coverage because if you're rushing nine and you've got two in coverage then I think you're still winning with Tyree Hill out there. If you're triple covering Hill and you're only rushing eight, well, then maybe Mahomes finds a lane and does his little like mm. high-step run for a first down. I, I would say bad idea, but I would like to see it. Okay, good. So we're open to it. That's all I wanted. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. They ran, they ran a 14 personnel, four tight end set for a touchdown. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for anything. He's Josh Briscoe, almost entirely sports on 810, Arrowhead Report on SI Now, Times Hours on The Athletic. Josh, thank you so much for the time, especially on a uh, busy day like today. I'll let you get back to it. Thank you for being flexible today. I hope that having me on was, in fact, a good idea. Yes, it was. Great idea, in fact. That's Josh Briscoe (laughs) joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Two hours down, one to go, right here on FM 1017.
1320 KLWN with Colsey to Butar. I'm Derek Johnson. This is RCST.